the uh, topic tonight is the uh, early Christian writer Tertullian, who was active between, let's say, 190 and 220. That means he kind of comes in about the end of Irenaeus' life, uh, who died in 202. So when Irenaeus is kind of doing his uh, his uh, struggle against Gnosticism, Tertullian is is becoming involved in writing in the church at that time. So he's on the one hand part of kind of the uh, anti-Gnostic struggle, but also he comes into the period we'll be talking about uh, later of the the school of Alexandria. So such writers as Clement of Alexandria and Origen are Tertullian's contemporaries on the latter half of his life. So that's kind of a he's sort of the transition between the second and third century, basically. Now Tertullian fits into a bigger picture because Tertullian did not is not Saint Tertullian, and he's not actually uh, sort of technically a church father, although he's a very important uh, Christian writer, early Christian writer. And in, in, uh, in some ways, I guess in the West maybe they do call him a church father, uh, just because his writings are so important. The reason why they're important, there's several reasons. One is that he wrote a lot. Uh, there's in the Anti-Nicene Fathers that one of the gray volumes with the, except with the red, the little red, down on the kind of the lower shelf there, the blue ones. Well, is he the, in volume one? he's uh, no, he's volumes three and four. So he actually gets two volumes uh, of that. So he's important because he just wrote a lot more than any of the church fathers we've talked about so far. I mean, Ignatius has the seven little letters, and uh, Justin, the two apologies, and the, the trifo of Ain. Still, those all, you know, all those people we've been talking about are all sort of just part of volume one, including Irenaeus, who's sort of longish work against the heresies, but is uh, probably the biggest one of the bunch there, but, but still, it's all fitting in one volume. Tertullian by himself is, is filling two volumes just on what survived. So he gives us a much more comprehensive picture and, and, and let's say, uh, a lot more of a personal picture of an early Christian writer than probably we've gotten so far. He is also the first major, uh, there's Manuchius Felix, Felix, but Tertullian is sort of the first famous uh, uh, let's say major Christian writer in Latin. So before this, all their church fathers, even the ones in, in the West, like Irenaeus, living in what's now France, he's writing in, in Greek. Hippolytus up in Rome is writing in Greek. And so Tertullian, in writing in Latin, uh, is significant because he's often the one kind of helping to set the terminology that the, that the Western church will use uh, for the rest of its time, the, the, the theological terms. Tertullian, though, is, is, as I said, is not uh, considered, is not a saint because he did not remain in the Orthodox Church. <coughs> yes. Did, did he die in communion with the Orthodox Church? No, he did not. He, uh, he left the church to join a group called the Montanists and according to Augustine, uh, at the end of his life, he 
actually split with the main group of Montanists and formed his own sect called the Tertullianists. And that, uh, and if you know something about uh, sectarianism, that's not surprising because once you adopt a sort of sectarian way of thinking about things, then you uh, you end up they tend to keep on dividing up among themselves. Yes. He wrote this work called uh, Prescription Against Heretics, yes. in which he said that the Bible uh-huh. was the belonged to the church, yes. and it didn't that the heretics had no right to even quote from it. That's right. In defense of their doctrines, and I, I, I found it very it get, yeah. you know, against anyone who was not a member of the Orthodox Church. Yeah. And, and did he ever? I mean, that argument seems to go against him when he leaves. Well, we'll find uh, He actually, it wouldn't carry any weight with him because of um, the nature of Montanism. So we'll discuss that. But he's writing that against the Gnostics. The Gnostics are, as I said earlier, uh, individual teachers who took their uh, sort of a dualistic philosophy to create secret teachings which they passed on to their disciples that would allow them to have salvation. So against Gnosticism, Tertullian, like all of the anti-Gnostic writers, sees the church as this monolithic continuity with the apostolic age that's found throughout the um, throughout the whole world. And actually, if you uh, a lot of the modern modern uh, things like the Da Vinci Code and and uh, some of the authors that have kind of jumped on that bandwagon. They're really adopting the Gnostic view of early Christianity, saying, well, that we're all just, you know, all individual people all have equally valid views, which the uh, the church is saying, well, no, they're not all equally valid because um, that something that's made up by an individual is not a continuity of the apostolic faith, whereas the church is teaching having that public uh, succession of bishops teaching the same thing, that's, that's in the opposite of that. Yes, so It seems like a lot of the modern, quote, Gnostic things mm-hmm. don't seem to have a lot of continuity with ancient Gnosticism. Well, that's true, because they're not, uh, they themselves are not Gnostics. I think what the modern uh, interest in Gnosticism is essentially a way of trying to discredit Christianity, not because they want to be Gnostics, but because they want to say that, see, Christianity is just the same as Gnosticism, we don't have to listen to it, and it, so it's uh, it gets its popularity from that. I haven't noticed uh, yeah, a lot of people kind of adopting a Gnostic life or something, uh, trying to set up a Gnostic church or something like that. But although some, perhaps some are, but but it's uh, the Montanism is part of a of a movement which sometimes gets the name. Uh, it has its peculiarities, but the overall, let's say, rigorism, and we might call it sectarianism. Also, that is, first off, the uh, assigning of extra uh, extra burdens on people to be, in other words, so ordinary Christians live uh, according to normal Christian teachings, but true Christians, if you really want to be a true Christian, you should live with some extra rules above and beyond what normal Christians do. In some ways, these extra rules might remind you of monasticism, 
the way that some of the teachings of the Gnostics might also remind you of that. The difference is that in monasticism, in the church, these, um, let's say, more rigorous practices are voluntary. In other words, there's something we are saying it's all right to live the way everyone else does, but we are going to choose a more difficult way of life in order to um, try to devote ourselves more to God. In the rigorous sects that develop, the rigorous, rigorism, these additional burdens are considered to be uh, normative, they, that are necessary for salvation for any Christian. The uh, most basic is something called encratism, and that is the belief that uh, Christians cannot cannot marry, so that that celibacy is needed for salvation. And this um, this was around again, like Gnosticism was something that was around before Christianity, but it kind of uh, influences some people within the church. And I'll talk about it. Tertullian has a uh, another person whose career is very similar to his, called Tatian. Tatian was both Tertullian and Tatians were Tatian were pagans. Both converted to Christianity, and uh, Tertullian was a lawyer, and he he may even be a very famous lawyer. There's a debate about that that's quoted in the Roman legal books. Uh, Tatian was a, probably a philosopher or something like that. And they both become Christian and they both are part of this upper class uh, intelligentsia, so to speak, that that when they become Christians, then turn around and become the uh, spokespeople or defenders of the church back to the pagan society. And that's the group of authors we uh, talked with, with, as in Justin, Justin the philosopher, we call them apologists, that is, uh, the defenders of the church. And we talked about how these people, um, coming from the upper levels of Roman society, now um, are trying to explain Christianity back to their compatriots. Now, in the case of, of Justin and, and most of the uh, early uh, Greek apologists, Part of what the, they saw as a positive, they, they sort of saw things in the Roman society that were positive, that they felt that Roman society was kind of looking for Christianity. So that, and part of that uh, was was Platonism, right? Now, yes. What part of the world were Tertullian and Tatian from? Oh, sorry. Tertullian lived in in uh, what was called North Africa, today Tunisia. And the city of Carthage, although he he went to Rome as a uh, lawyer for a while, but then on his conversion to Christianity in uh, I think around 193, he returned to Carthage and became. You say he wrote in Latin. Yes, right, because North Africa, which had been Carthage, was colonized from Italy, so that was a big, actually a a center of Latin civilization. In some ways, it was more conservative than Italy became later in preserving Latin culture. Uh, Tatian was, came from either Mesopotamia or Syria, and he came to Rome where he became a disciple of Justin. But Tatian 
and Tertullian differ from the other apologists uh, in that in two ways. Uh, one is that neither one of them remained in the church. Both ended up leaving the church. And the other thing was that they um, they viewed the relationship, they viewed the, the non-Christian world in a much more negative way than, than most of the apologists. Most of the apologists felt that the non-Christian world was striving for God and how to, they, what they were saying was, well, if you only knew what you were doing, you were looking at, you would see that Christianity fulfills what you're trying to get. Whereas Tatian and Tertullian <coughs> come to reject the non-Christian world and see it as totally evil and therefore um, a kind of war between the two. And the famous uh, phrase of Tertullian is, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Meaning that there's, there's no connection. They both uh, condemn Greek philosophy in sort of in toto, that it's, that it's nothing good about it. So there, so as opposed to the other apologists, which are saying, well, no, see, in Greek philosophy, God is revealing and preparing you to receive the truth, and that Plato, um, Plato is actually sort of looking for Christ, looking for God, but in here, if you, you would see what, that you have what Plato is trying to find. So, their response is a sort of this rejection of philosophy, and um, it's important to talk about because Tertullian, uh, like some of the other authors, Tertullian particularly, because he wrote so much and he is such an important witness to the early church, um, he has still is a, a very influential and always has been very influential on the way that particularly Western Christians, view early Christianity. So if you look at, uh, let's say, Anab the Anabaptist movement, they look at somebody like Tertullian and say, well, see, that's right, that's what we, you know, that this kind of rejection of the world, rather than uh, what's more common in the Orthodox world, a sort of positive assessment of the world, trying to, and trying to bring, make, help the world make that bridge to the church. Yes? Is that why, like, um, liturgical... Christians such as Orthodox and Romans, they some, we, we sometimes get accused by Protestants as being like Platonists. Yes, that's right. That is why. Because um, those who follow Tertullian's outlook or Tatian's outlook are saying that, see, that, the, that all of this is, is evil. And so the fact that our, our, the Church Fathers, in most of the Church Fathers, tried to work through uh, Greek philosophy to them, that means, well, they, in fact, were apostatizing, and that's a, a difference. Uh, Tatian becomes a kind of leader of encratism and ends up saying that uh, since Christ was uh, himself celibate, the only way to be a Christian is to be celibate, and marriage is a, uh, he's, he's called it fornication with the devil. So that's a, uh, so it's kind of strange here, somebody with um alongside of Justin, the philosopher, and then it was after Justin's death, uh, his martyrdom in 165, that Tatian kind of just rejects. Um, he also perhaps was influenced in some ways by Gnosticism, which also uh, rejected marriage. But that was one of the things that Justin was fighting with. Tertullian continues to reject <coughs> um, Gnosticism and doesn't directly fall into encratism, 
but he's, he comes under the influence of the Montanists. And the Montanists <coughs> started out with a... Uh, they, they didn't call themselves Montanists. They called themselves the New Prophecy. And we, uh, the church called the Montanists because they were started by a man named Montanus who lived about... Um, he's 156 or something, somewhere in there. He's, he lived in what's now Turkey. And he was a priest of Sibyl, which is a um, a pagan uh, religion where the priest kind of goes into trances and things. When he became a Christian, <coughs> he also started having these trances. And, they, and he decided that... Um, he was actually the incarnation of the Holy Spirit through these uh, prophetic trances. And uh, you're probably just wondering, you know, where is one of his churches, so you can run over there to check it out. But, uh, <laughs> but it actually, um, at first he didn't it didn't grow that fast, but he managed to get some followers up in the mountains of Phrygia, which is central. Uh, Turkey, and that's uh, there. So they're often they're called the it's called the Phrygian heresy often too. And he had two disciples, uh, two women who he could, because he originally was teaching Encratism also, and got um, people should leave their their spouses and and not be married. And he had two women, uh, Maximilla and Priscilla, who became uh, prophetesses under him and who out, outlived him. And they began to um, say that they were they were the they were the new prophecy. The three of them that this was that they were the holy representing the Holy Spirit and that this was kind of fulfillment of what Christ said that he would send the Holy Spirit to teach the church all things. So now with Montanus the Holy Spirit is here and the revelation of the Holy Spirit supersedes the revelation of Christ and the Gospels and the New Testament and of the Church. And, and Montanus, uh, one of the phrases they used that he was he was the Church, the only true uh, prelate, the only true hierarch. So ev- all the clergy in the Church really have no authority, but rather Montanus sort of replaces all bishops, uh, sort of the only bishop. Uh, and his revelation of this new prophecy now uh, has a greater authority than than the Gospels or anything that's in in the Church. In this, uh, some of the teachings initially, he starts out with the uh, condemnation of all marriage. This later is moderated to the condemnation of second marriage. And the uh, condemnation you have to, that you can't flee from martyrdom that uh, there's um, no no flight from martyrdom is permitted um, so if there's persecution you have to stay and be martyred if um. and there also was the idea of uh, well, well, we'll get to that. But there's a of no uh, no forgiveness for uh, after baptism. Is this what Mark Well, this the last one uh, 
we know these first ones are his. The the last one, it's it's not clear when that came in. But also, oh, the other things he introduced was additional fasts and also um, rules concerning veils. Before this time, the uh, married women wore veils and uh, the prophetess re- re- revealed that um, that girls who were not yet married also had to be fully veiled uh, both in church and out out in the world. So this, uh, so a lot of what uh, Priscilla, Maximilla, and Priscilla are teaching are kind of extra uh, rules that Christians have to follow. <clears throat> the other things they were involved in was a lot of uh, fundraising activities and uh, also some kind of worldly life. Uh, but this. Um, <clears throat> It came to when the world, when the, um, they were kind of getting all these people and saying that essentially that their revelation replaced the church. The bishops in Asia Minor, uh, decided to investigate. And so you have a period in the 170s when they're investigating these people. And the, um, source, by the way, the, the, the best source is uh, Eusebius' church history, which is always kind of a, major source for this period, the early Christian pre-Constantinian period. Uh, Also, Epiphanius' Against Heresies has a a fair amount on this, and then also um, um, Hippolytus wrote something about them on this as well. But the biggest uh, source is there. And so the question at the bishop, well, so since they're saying, well, well, this is the revelation of the Holy Spirit, so um, you know, how can the bishops have any right to sort of judge this? And the bishops had to come up with some criteria for uh, how do we decide, you know, whether this is this is uh, legitimate or not. And um, Eusebius here is, has a very uh, rich account. He, he quotes from a, a fairly large number of, of authors from that time. The number one question is, uh, is this a movement for personal gain? In other words, I did the uh, like in the church? The church is set up not for was not set up for the personal gain of Christ. Christ died for the people, but um, in a in a cult group, the, the the thing is set up specifically to benefit the founder or successors of the founder of the of the group. And what they concluded is that um, these people were, to some extent, living a worldly life and were very interested in in soliciting uh, donations and we're paying people to go out and missionize and get uh, recruit uh, funds. So they decide that this is first indication that they are not uh, legitimate prophets and uh, do not uh, represent the church. Um, the second, okay, is the movement in order to give power to the founders and that's, yes, that is that is the thing. Because they, they then said that, well, they, here's the coming of the Holy Spirit and the prophecy, prophecy but that they are the last prophets, that there's no future prophets other than them. So they are the final uh, word. And and it kind of incorporated that their movement sort of revolved around themselves rather than uh, with an intending to upbuild the whole church. Uh, three, is this accompanied by a holy life? And they, but the investigation found that they did not. In the end, actually... Um, According to Eusebius' uh, source, both Montanus and Maximilla 
they, because they both they were using uh, the method of going into frenzies in order to make these uh, prophecies, which we would see as demonic rather than uh, the action of the Holy Spirit. And in both Montanus and Maximilla, apparently uh, lost their reason and uh, both committed suicide. So that's again a good indication that they're not uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, but with something different. The other, the final criteria. Does this support the teachings of the church? And uh, that this is the incarnation of the Holy Spirit? No. And that there's all these uh, changes, things that, that went against the church's teaching. And we'll examine this more in Tertullian particularly, because oddly enough, this is all there going on in the 170s. Tertullian decides to become a Montanist in 207, um, you know, 30 years later. So it's strange, after after all this, you think, why would anybody become a Montanist? But you'll find out. <laughs> yes, he, he apparently died even before the, the investigation here, or around that time. And Maximilla um, was longer, I forget, let's see, when she... I think she she died in 179. She also, they, they predicted that the New Jerusalem would arrive in Phrygia, and um, the end of the world would come at Maximilla's death. Well, that didn't happen. So, again, you have to kind of wonder why why is Tertullian becoming a Montanist? But that's um, we'll we'll see. Okay. So the church, <coughs> the Montanists actually hung around after, and they are still um, they were in Rome during the 190s, and Tertullian had become interested in them at that point because he saw them as having a greater rigor. But now let's talk about his sort of pre-Montanist uh, things. Actually, is there a... Do you have a paper towel or something? You can just wipe over for me, please. Oh, okay. Thank you. I've, I've got something. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. As a... But in his conversion to Christianity, his first major works deal with apologies, um, apologetics, He's writing to the Romans, and he's condemning uh, Greek religion and uh, philosophy, also saying that the uh, persecutions of the Christians are legally unjust because they're not being condemned of any... There's no proof of any crime. That simply just because they're Christians, they're being holed off. In that sense, what he's writing is not that different from what uh, Justin is writing. Um, because he was a lawyer, it's perhaps uh, you know more in, maybe more interesting or intense than... Justin, but it's it's kind of very much in the tradition of typical apologetics. He also wrote extensive anti-Gnostic works. Um, his his big book there is against Marcion, and he's um, his main concern because Gnostics believe that the material world was uh, created by the devil or is evil, and therefore that Christ did not have a material body. So. In his anti-Gnostic works, he's uh, focusing on the, uh, the the flesh of Christ, the the, uh, the material resurrection of Christ and of us. So, uh, again, would be very typical of what's in Irenaeus. Now, there were some things that he's writing that are not typical, and this was his uh, in relation to the, to the Christian's relationship to the world. And his first work on this is something called On Shows, or uh, On Spectacles, maybe more similar in the Latin. 
So because the, remember the Romans had um, these sort of circuses and all kinds of uh, entertainments for people in the city to keep them interested. <clears throat> His argument is that the shows in the uh, Colosseums and such were uh, connected with, in their origin, these these uh, things were were done to commemorate uh, certain feast days of the gods. So they have connections to uh, to pagan idolatry, even though uh, they're not worship services, but they were they're festivals, pagan festivals connected with shows celebrating pagan festivals, even though it's something going. So he argues that Christians have to. Uh, avoid, you know, Christians can't go to these. Now, again, looking at this from the point of view, if you, if you, from the, uh, let's say, Anabaptist view of church history, they say, well, see, <coughs> early Christians didn't do any of that stuff. Uh, early Christians, uh, we're going to go down a list here. Early Christians didn't do anything uh, that we'll talk about. But the um, the fact that Tertullian is writing all this and, and it's because he's disagreeing with the way early Christians lived. He's saying that, uh, well, perhaps they shouldn't have gone to uh, shows if they were immoral. Actually, the other his other argument is that some of the shows arouse the passion, so perhaps that we would uh, agree with. But the we'll get to some of the others. Uh, he's uh, the next one that he wrote is something called On Crowns. That's connected with, there was a um, a Roman soldier when um, the Emperor Severus became Emperor, it was customary to give a donation to the soldiers, right? And so when you were coming up for your donation, your little bonus, you wore a, a crown of laurels. So all the soldiers are going up and uh, this one Christian soldier decides that he's not going to wear a crown of laurels and he takes it off and goes up and kind of causes a thing in there. Well, why are you doing this, and well, I'm a Christian, I don't, uh, I'm not going to honor, you know, pagan gods by putting on laurel. So, he's taken off and martyred. Well, at the time, many Christians considered that the soldier had um, done something wrong, by, in a sense, not, by, by doing something to uh, cause a fuss that was not uh, specifically against Christian teaching, in other words, wearing this this crown, that he was sort of provoking persecution. Now Tertullian jumps in and defends that, defends the martyr, and says that, well, really, Christians, uh, because this, the uh, oaths for the, for the military are connected with uh, paganism, that Christians cannot be uh, in the army. So, so this is again, this is something used um, for again, the sort of Anabaptist position that Christians can't be in the military. But uh, the, the person who was martyred, obviously, was in the military, and then there are many people who say, well, he should have just gone on and gotten his bonus and not caused any trouble. So it, it's not, uh, Tertullian is not reflecting the reality of early Christianity. He's reflecting a particular position which ultimately leads him to leave the church. So that's uh, that's why when you look at uh, early Christian writings, it's good to know something about who's writing it, why, and how that fits into the whole picture. Otherwise, you can reach a kind of false conclusions about uh, what does this mean. In his, uh, let's see, he wrote an, another book um, called On Idolatry, 
shortly after this. And this, at this point, he had, um, on shows is written in the beginning. These two are written in 211, uh, shortly after his official, con- his conversion to Montanism. On idolatry, what he argues is that pagan society in general is connected to idolatry on almost every level. So, including, so service in the government, to some extent, you might involve you in uh, something connected with paganism. So the army, the government, uh, teaching uh, literature in a school, because you're, the classics of literature have to do with paganism. So he kind of, um, so rejection, the Christian can't be in government, uh, no government, no no, uh, no teaching, and you you get the idea that that, there, that the Christian has to in a sense, live a life of complete separation from the society of the world, non-Christian society. Yes. Did he say anything about hospitals back in those days? Because you know, in hospitals in those days, they like they 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 like healed in the name of the pagan gods, and they had like. Um, not that I know of. I don't that know if that was an he issue. Commented on that because that would be like another thing. What Christians mm-hmm. can't go into. Yeah. Who who is that? that? Be mercenary healers. Yeah, I see. Who said that? No, nobody said. Oh that. no! I'm sorry. Okay. Not not said. that I know of. No. But I suppose that he might have thought that if if that had uh, come up. I don't know how common those uh, hospitals were. Like pagan hospitals, but well, he. Like temples, he's, they, yeah. Like yeah. That, probably Christians probably didn't go wouldn't have gone to a pagan temple I would guess uh, already cuz but cuz somehow that issue doesn't seem to come up with him. Basically pagan folk remedies. Yeah. That hospital Yeah, I don't know. So this um okay, sort of let's say so a rejection of the world of Christian participation in the world. Uh, it's used, as I said, to support those positions today that a Christian should not be in government, a Christian should not be in the army. Of course, his own arguments are this is because these all these things are pagan. I suppose, in a way, um, if the uh, government had been Christian, it, all, all of these arguments might not have uh, come into play. In, in contrast, the, um, the apologists often point to the role of Christians in the army, the prayers of Christian soldiers in giving the empire victory over their enemies. Um, so there's a different, uh, different, uh, you know, take on this. So, some of the apologists again saw the Christian participation in the army, and, and uh, later, and in, in we get to the persecutions. Uh, people like Saint George and Saint Procopius are uh, high up uh, Roman officials, actually, who are being martyred. So that, that, in fact, Christians did participate in government and, and the army, but um, if you were just reading Tertullian, you might not get that impression, although the fact that he's arguing about it might give you a hint. The, um, okay. the other, uh, <coughs> Tertullian, one of the things that it made him convert to Christianity was he was impressed with... Uh, the martyrs and their bravery, and he wrote some things, some good things on that before he be, he left. But uh, there's something which may be by him, although it's debated. But it's, uh, 
This is a book put out by the OCA called The Faithful Witnesses. And it's a collection of early martyr accounts. And um, the one that's in here is Perpetua and Felicity. Uh, they were martyred in 202 in Carthage. There, at 202, there was a rule uh, made that Christians, it was not, uh, you'd, he, Emperor Severus wasn't persecuting people for being Christians, but if you were converting anyone to Christianity, or if you were yourself a convert, so it became a, a death penalty for uh, becoming a catechumen. And Perpetua and, and uh, Felicity were catechumens, and they were put to death in 202, about the time uh, Tertullian is there at that point. And uh, many people uh, consider this work hit to be his, although it's... Uh, or, and, because uh, it's sort of similar uh, kind of intense, uh, you know, glorification of martyrdom, which we would agree with. In fact, that's so. That's a very important uh, work, and and uh, we just uh, had the 1800th anniversary of that martyrdom a few years ago. So uh, that was yes. Is that Severus? Yes, that's right. Yeah, sorry. But he, um, when he becomes a Montanist, uh, he goes beyond just a, a glorifying martyrdom, as we would, but he follows their position that um, one is not allowed to flee from martyrdom. And his, his reasoning is this. He ascribes martyrdom to God and persecution to God, that since God, God is the one uh, martyring you and the one who is persecuting you, so therefore, to flee from persecution is to be in rebellion against God. So it becomes a kind of uh, deterministic position, actually. That's, what I mean by that is that essentially whatever happens is fated to happen by God. So, um, <coughs> Which is not the Christian position, actually. Although we, uh, we talk about God's providence, but we see God working for us salvation and we also but we also see that God in creating the, the angels and men gave them freedom to do good or bad and so the things that happen in this world that are bad are not things done by God but are things done in disobedience to God by uh, the fallen angels and by us so we uh, and a good contrast would be um, Eusebius's account of the Gallic martyrdoms in 177 he describes this uh, as I think the letter from the, the uh, people there does that the, that the devil is the source of persecution that he is the one who stirs people up to persecute the church and to but with the goal uh, not just of killing them but his that the devil's goal is making the uh, the Christian give up his Christianity and for this reason the church did not encourage people to seek martyrdom because if you are you are putting yourself into the contest with the devil which you could lose I mean because you might get in there and then chicken out and uh, say well I don't really want to be tortured to death and ripped limb from limb so I'll go along and just sacrifice well so th that's one thing that happens if you didn't have any choice uh, and you're too weak to endure but if you put yourself into that situation it's seen as a sort of tempting God but to uh, Tertullian, uh, this is not tempting God. This is just God's uh, 
God's, God's uh, sort of sovereign rule of the world and he is sending a persecution and where you are going to be killed and it's therefore uh, sinful for you to uh, try to avoid that persecution. But that's, uh, it's interesting, this element of determinism is become, is a, becomes a strong element in uh, Tertullian's thinking and as uh, we'll see later, <coughs> Augustine himself, uh, of course he was a former Manichae who were determinists, they he, it's this deterministic element that, that leads to uh, some of the errors in Augustine's teachings that uh, come in, ultimately show up in what we call the Calvinism in the modern times because the, because the reformers were Augustinians, so they're, they're using that theology. So we can't flee. His, then his argument also, uh, remember I mentioned that the Montanists said that you can't uh, marry a second time. Well, his argument here is the same that uh, in his book uh, Exhortation to Chastity in 210 he uh, argues that, that the death of your spouse was uh, that God did that. God, God killed your spouse and so therefore if you remarry you are uh, rebelling against God's will. So therefore you uh, that would be a sin. He also uh, because, remember, the Montanist and the Encrotite movement were kind of against marriage as a, as a whole, Tertullian uh, kind of also does that. He, In his pre-Montanist writings, he sort of is, he's actually glorifying Christian marriage, and on the question of second marriage, he recommends against second marriage, but he still sees uh, Christian marriage as something good. Yes, Phil? How does this compare to, like, um, a lot of times we have saints who ran away from their spouses and became nuns or monks? How yes. does that compare to this? Well, it is a problem because uh, technically you're not allowed to do that, actually, <laughs> by uh, the canons and things like that. But uh, but it's true. There were uh, some of the Desert Fathers did do things like that, but that's uh, generally frowned upon by the Church, actually, even though uh, we admire their uh, zeal, I guess, in other ways. But but in here, he's actually um, talking about, uh, specifically about, because he, he, he argues that, that marriage in general puts you in a lower spiritual state and that, um, and so remarriage uh, becomes a, you know, is a, a wild immorality, a wild immorality because you know, it's sort of bad enough that you got married, but now you want to be married twice, so this is, you know, very excessive. So, uh, so it condemns, uh, and, and he argues in his uh, last book, On Monogamy, um, that, um, that, that people who are married are um, excommunicated, second marriage are excommunicated from the church. This, um, Yes. Yes. On the fleeing, <coughs> not fleeing persecution. Yes. I don't know if he wrote anything on it, but what would he have said about Joseph fleeing to Egypt? Joseph. Yeah, Joseph fleeing to Egypt with the Christ. Oh, I see. Um, well, probably that that was or, ordained by God. You know, the it's angel it's told him to do it. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, he he also it's, it's very interesting in his arguments. Oh, well, that's his interesting argument here. Um, because of course uh, Saint Paul says you can uh, get married again. So there's um, let me find that. Uh, 
Um, nice quote on this. Okay, so he says, well, but that's just St. Paul. He says, whatever, whatever is not explicitly permitted or commanded by the Lord is forbidden. And this, uh, the same line of argument goes in the, in the Reformed churches, you know, basically, uh, as far as, uh, candles and vestments and stuff. Whatever is not explicitly commanded in the New Testament is is forbidden in the church. So that's why they don't allow ornamentation in the churches. Not that the church, not that the New Testament ever says you can't have a candle or can't have vestments, or but music. or music or something. But they, um, well, pianos. <laughs> anyway, whatever. You know, they just uh, so they take this sort of negative approach. And uh, I thought that you know that's um, that reflects his uh, mindset in a certain way. Um, on this veiling of versions, he, he has another good quote there, um, because this was something revealed by the by the prophets, uh, Maximilla prophetesses there. But he and so the on the other side is well that this you know the church had this tradition that the it was the uh, married women who did this and, and the girls I guess they didn't they didn't wear veils. So he makes the uh, statement. Whatever savors of opposition to truth is heresy, even if it is ancient custom. And he says this in a number of places where he's contrasting the tradition of the church. He rejects the tradition of the church in favor of the prophecies of the of the women. Right? And um, it's stuck in my mind because uh, Cyprian, who um, comes after him in Carthage, <coughs> makes almost the same statement. For Cyprian, um, he re- to him... He's not a Montanist, but he always refers for Cyprian Montanist, Tertullian, excuse me, is like the only church father because he wrote in Latin. And he always refers to Tertullian as the master. But he makes that statement in regard to the uh, rebaptism because the church uh, did, it was not rebaptizing people from heretical groups, but was receiving them by chrismation. And Cyprian says, well, um, Ancient custom is just ancient error, you know, that's, but he kind of, so it's this, um, and ultimately, you know, the church, uh, you know, kind of disagree with Cyprian on that and, and have the canons and everything, but this, uh, this attitude of, um, rejection of, rejection of the church tradition, and we will, um, say that, uh, okay, not everything that every early Christian ever did is necessarily uh, gospel, but but the consensus of the church and the norm, the tradition of the church's practice is part of what Irenaeus is referring to. He says, "Well, what does separate us from the from the Gnostics who make up their theories? You know, each, each Gnostic teacher makes them up. That our teachings go back and are continuous back to Christ, and that's what distinguishes the church from a heretical group. For Cyprian, I mean, for Tertullian and later Cyprian." They both say, no, I mean, uh, that the church's practice is, is no indication of what is true, uh, particularly Tertullian. And, of course, he's coming at it from the, the idea that these Montanist teachers were, were in fact, revelations of the Holy Spirit. Yes? Um, at, at one point, Tertullian makes the same argument that Irenaeus does, that the, that the apostolic tradition was passed on to the apostolic churches and that... Anybody that wanted to know what the what the what the, 
apostles taught to just go to the Does he in, in the uh where in the anti Gnostic writings? Yeah, it must be early. It's it is early, yeah. He changes quite a bit when he comes becomes Gnostic. Because actually his early um well, go ahead. Yeah. It sounds kind of like you did a flip flop or something on this. Uh, yeah. After becoming a monster, because it doesn't sound like, you know, uh, like what he was saying earlier. Yeah. That's um. Well, that's that's uh, not surprising. A lot of his writings, um, when he's writing against the church, he's also contradicting his own early early writings when he was in the church. The uh, thing that happened that converted him it was that the uh, Montanists were. In Rome, and the Pope there was kind of wishy-washy, you know, tempted to accept them. And finally, there was a, a battle. One of the priests, uh, you know, sort of made the case, and they ended up being condemned in, in the 190s, I guess. Um, and this Tertullian uh, sort of took exception with the decision of the Roman Church, and ultimately, you know, decided to... I mean, even in this pre-Montanist uh, writings, you start seeing... Not the earliest ones, but there the period about 204 on, he starts adopting mountainous ideas, and then 207 he leaves. Uh, one of the examples of the change is his um, on penance. He writes on penance in uh, in uh, I think 197. In, and in the early church, there was the question, I guess, of what happens, okay, when you're baptized, you're forgiven your sins. Okay, now you're in the church. What happens if a Christian um, sins? And some people, you know, uh, were not sure about whether they uh, could come back in search of, of, a, of a major sin. And the um, the, the book, uh, The Shepherd of Hermas, written in their 120s, I guess, he, uh, Hermas, who is the uh, brother of the Pope, has this vision of angels that show him that there is a a, sing, a penance, so that a Christian uh, a, a single penance that they could uh, have forgiveness of sins uh, before death. And this, um, this so this idea that a, that that a Christian could be restored uh, even though they committed a sin after baptism was around, but it was generally considered to be sort of a deathbed. So if you had um, committed a major sin, you would be uh, penitent in the church until you would look like you were going to die, and then they would receive you back in. And his book on penance follows what was the common uh, Christian tradition on that. He's, first off, he argues that properly the only forgiveness that you know kind of God wants to give us is at baptism. But he said... Uh, you know, and we should focus on that, and that uh, properly Christians should not be committing any major sins after that. But if, if something happens, yes, there is this opportunity for a single a single opportunity for penance afterwards. Um, now, when he gets to becoming a Montanist, uh, he writes a book called um, On Purity. Uh, or what in Latin it kind of looks like on modesty, but uh, but in there, this was written in response to Pope Callistus in 217, who allowed um, kind of multiple um, multiple 
repentances for sins, that you could basically, anyone who had committed a major sin would could go through the penance and be readmitted back into the church. And uh, I think he didn't he didn't place any limit on how many times that would be. So uh, Tertullian writes, and Tertullian one of the things about Tertullian is that his style he's a um, very biting writer. He's a lot of people read him for entertainment actually because he's so uh, uh, kind of vicious actually in, in his uh, writing. And he he really mocks uh, the Pope you know for for making this rule. And he says that uh, in the Montes Church, it's just the opposite, that the, that the major sins uh, of, uh, let's say, adultery, uh, murder, and uh, apostasy, that these are unforgivable sins, uh, which he's not the first person to think that up, but, uh, but this, you know, was not the mainstream position, uh, excuse me, un- unforgivable but um, which will later become the position of the Montanists, excuse me, Novationists um, in the third century. But that that for a Christian, uh, he decides that the only real forgiveness uh, is at baptism. And then once you're baptized, if you should fall into any of these sins, well, then you're just you're just out, and uh, there's no there's no possibility. He then argues um, that the cl- Kind of here, he's, he rejects the uh, the role of the clergy in the church, and says that uh, the clergy, by their worldly life, have no, um, you know, that this uh, idea that the well, the apostles were given. He said, okay, the apostles are given the the uh, ability to remit sins, but that that he says that doesn't apply to the clergy because the clergy are worldly and not spiritual. But that the only people who have that right are um, the spiritual ones, by which he means uh, Montanus and Maximilla and so on. So only they would have the right to forgive sins, and in this case, even these these sins are beyond any forgiveness, so there's no possibility. Um, and that battle, we'll see, goes on, will go on in the third century. Yes, is it, it's time. Did you, intend to, did you intend to stop at this point? Yes, I do. So thank you. And... Um, all righty. Well, I mean, we, we'd love to hear you go on. But, uh, no, that's all right. I, I will stop there. That's, that's sort of all the major points. But, uh, I'll just say that Tertullian's, um, to some extent, as the, um, because he's influential on Cyprian, we'll later see that kind of some of the sectarian mentality of the Montanists is conveyed through Tertullian through Cyprian, and that's what uh, becomes very influential for the Donatist heresy in the 4th century. And because, as we see, Tertullian in the West, you know, has kind of been inspirational for a lot of uh, uh, Protestant groups, but it's, uh, and in a way his sectarianism as passed into Cyprian has even been influential in the 20th century for among Orthodox, because they've, they read uh, these authors and kind of take their, let's say, extreme statements, literally, and, and use that as a kind of a, a basis for an ecclesiology that ultimately becomes sectarian and uh, leads to uh, separation from the church.